in honor of Captain America 2, who is an on-screen hero that best typifies the true American hero? I'm Katie Rich, and I'm going with Frank Capron America, my favorite rejected trivia team name and a nerdy comic book I would definitely read. I'm Dave with a 7 and Indiana Jones, because fuck other cultures, it belongs in an American museum. <laughs> I am Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with uh, Dominic Purcell's character Jim Baxford in the Juve Bowl film Assault on Wall Street. Not that I endorse anything he does, because he's a terrifying human being, but he does go pick up an assault rifle and shoot up a wall street uh investment firm so he's probably exemplifying what america would like to do uh and i'm david ehrlich and do you believe in miracles because i'm going with all the guys in the movie miracle because hockey gentlemen you can't fight in here this is the war room fine i can hear you now dimitri clear and plain and coming through fine i'm coming through fine too eh good then well then as you say we're both coming through fine good well, it's good that you're fine, and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 17 for Friday, April, Tuesday, April Fool's. It's Tuesday, not Friday. Cole, you it's got April 1st, me again. 2014. I know. I'm such a trickster. It's Tuesday, April 1st, 2014. Welcome to the episode. And thank you to those of you who left us iTunes reviews. David would like to give you a very special welcome. They are Drew Keist, who uh, says that it's a shame that I'm freelancing right now and doesn't have a full-time job. Drew, you're right. That is a shame. Uh, Nick Evans, who left us a very nice comment. Um, and G. Hervo, who uh, I think I know who that is. But uh, three lovely reviews. Thank you all. And uh, you should leave us a comment or a review on iTunes so I can mangle your name and point out your flattery of me in future episodes. But, uh, Dave, I think you think we should just make bold predictions about what happened anyway. Yeah, I think that... So future generations can see how wrong we were. This podcast always does better when we just fully commit to our wrong ideas. So I feel like we should continue with that The mother was shot in a courtroom shooting. Yeah, Magneto bent the bullet to go through the mother's (laughs) head. And now X-Men Days of Future Past happens. That both of those. What if they? Yeah. What if they undid thing. history? I mean, I'm sorry. When they did undo history, and now it's going to be rebooted as How I Met Your As How I Met Your Dad. dad. Wow. Which makes no okay. sense. Shouldn't it be How I Met Your Father? Where's the rhythmic, uh, you know, feat to to that? Short? Well, anyway. I think in the nine years. No, that drives me. In the nine years of How I Met Your Mother, you know, we were more accustomed to mother, but times have changed. Contemporary we've, we've children more say dad. They say dad. So you gotta say I know, that. there's really no manners anymore, and I think uh, How I Met Your Mother. Has I would like I would like a formal explanation from CBS on that score. This is something that has irked me from the very beginning. Well, I w- more than Greta Gerwig's involvement, more than whatever. I- this is this is what keeps Dad. me. To go, to, to go back to the original series, I'm not exactly sure what point of reference Katie wants to come in on, but to set like the stage for my involvement with the TV show, I always felt like somebody who moved to New York from Colorado that I had sort of two 
New York shows. And before I moved here, Seinfeld was sort of how I pictured New York. And a lot of that stuff sort of holds up the New Yorkisms of it all. But when I came here, How I Met Your Mother was much more uh, simpatico with my NYU experience and crazy things happening. Granted, they weren't as irreverent to say the Seinfeld things, but I kind of plugged into that series early on. So I've been on the horrible ride of How I Met Your Mother. Sometimes it's good, but a lot of times it's horrible. Yeah, How I Met Your Mother was a show I started watching my first year here. They all lived on the Upper West Side. They all went to Wesleyan. It felt very, I don't think there's ever been a sitcom where I was just like, wow, this actually is kind of like my life. And as most people who watch the show know, that feeling went away over time as it stayed on far longer than it needed to. Well, I mean, we say it went away, but we're all going to end up at Katie's wedding in May. So it could just be our era's ending, like How I Met Your Mother's, Katie. Well, we're but all it is, getting uh, old. It is like Seinfeld filmed on a soundstage in LA, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah, okay. it is. I mean, it started airing a season before 30 Rock, which was a much more authentically New York sitcom. Right. Probably, I mean, I don't I have no stats to back this up whatsoever, but I'm imagining 30 Rock was the first New York sitcom to actually be shot in New York in quite some time. Someone I don't know, but then it. you watch, uh, when you're talking about, I mean, I'm, regardless of 30 Rock, and that's, 30 Rock certainly felt like a New York show, but uh, in context of talking about How I Met Your Mother as a New York show, uh, it seems, uh, I mean, I know Broad City has only been on for, for a few weeks, but that is uh, a show where New York really plays a character. Yeah. And from like the very Jesus. little of how I met your mother. You gotta get I've rid seen, of your boner for this show. <laughs> I will never get rid of my boner for this show, Patches. Um, but, you know, from what little I've seen of how I met your mother, it's the usual exterior shots and then you cut to 3,000 miles away on a soundstage. So I'm curious as to how. Uh, what New Yorkishness it conveyed for you? What well, had very it had was really good with specific references to New Yorkiness. There's a whole episode where they challenge each other about what's the bet, what's the fastest way to get to this certain part of New York, which is a very specific New Yorky thing that you do. And, and kind of the same way as Seinfeld, it doesn't really look that much like New York, but people talk that way. At least in some of How I Met Your Mother's best moments. Yeah. Or then which... there's specific specific episodes where they would use like a New Yorky premise. They have one episode about the drunk train that you know goes uh, out of manhattan on the weekends up to the the suburbs and how you're allowed to drink on it and how it's a horrible train to be on if you're a responsible adult little little new york tweaks like that even though it's all sound staged up and still abides by the sitcom tropes and what have you yeah um, what I wanted to talk about with How I Met Your Mother was mostly was somewhat inspired by the lost conversation that we had a couple weeks ago, which you can still listen to on fightinginthewarroom.com. And Dave specifically talking about the part of t- the his- place in television history that Lost debuted, where it kind of started this trend of people overanalyzing shows that it didn't really have that much control over. Like it, it began it, but it didn't understand it maybe as well as the creators of True Detective or Breaking Bad did. And I think How I Met Your Mother was in an even tougher position where Lost had started uh, the season before How I Met Your Mother did, but, you know, it had been written. It was very much in development already. And it also played with a lot of narratives and in-jokes and kind of jumping around the timeline. I mean, not nearly as complicated as Lost, obviously, but you could tell they were enjoying being in a period where people would pay attention to that and where you were making a sitcom. You didn't have to make it as straightforward as possible so someone could tune in every week and not be lost. There would always be in-jokes. But I also think they started a little too early to be able to fully commit to it. As a CBS sitcom, I mean, possibly it's just that they're on the wrong network because CBS sitcoms haven't changed that much in nine years. But they kind of had a lot of big ideas that they couldn't quite execute. I mean, part of the frustrations of the later years is just that it wasn't that funny anymore and the actors seemed exhausted by it. But 
part of it was that they set up all these expectations for fans that kept not getting answered and people just got really furious when they would you know forget something in their continuity or they would lay down a suggestion and not follow up on it later and it was almost like they had created the beast in the same way that lost did, but lost control of it way more so than the creators of lost did to the point that the sitcom became more of a disappointment to the people who loved it the most rather than just people tuning into cbs every monday night but do you think that it was a lot to um the concept of, of building that complex of mythology into a uh, half or 22 minute weekly sitcom whereas in lost uh, which began in these 20 22 episode seasons and eventually pared down to 13 you get the feeling at least with the drama that the myth is really the heart of what they're doing and what they're building it's always very much on their minds and I think with the production cycle of a sitcom, it, it's it's insane enough to churn out that many episodes in that limited period of time, um, and to add a complex mythology to it seems like a fool's errand. Well, and complex I, mythologies, I think, is an overstatement for what they've. Well, I don't do know the show, so I'm, yeah. I'm just going off of what. Uh, so yeah, you tell me. I mean, is, is it really? Is it the kind of thing where they're just throwing you a little bone here or there? Or they're using it as like a Pam and Jim type plot device at the end of every season or it sweeps or is it something where you always have to look for clues and uh, no not so much looking for clues but a lot of, i mean there's the stuff with the mother which is you know another one set of easter eggs and then stuff like you know they'll reference a story and then they'll say and then we'll tell you later how that happened and then people say how are we going to learn about the pineapple incident and as i speak i don't believe they actually answered that and there's stuff like that well, that really lost had its outrigger <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. How your mother has the pineapple incident well i mean Dave, uh, yeah Dave, you, you you disagreed with my theory about uh its placement in tv history so i was curious about uh, where you disagreed with me. Yeah, I mean, because it's a comedy, I think it got sort of sandwiched in between uh, two very successful comedies that did what it wanted to do, which was make people laugh, but in two very different ways, which would be Family Guy, which sort of at the time was pioneering the nonsensical cutaway, and then Arrested Development, which now exists as like a pod of a complete story that folds back on itself for several times. The way How I Met Your Mother was sort of approaching comedy at the time was that it recognized it needed a faster pace, even though it was going to use this three camera setup and so their way of doing that was to play structural games with flashbacks and flash forwards and that's how you know they would sort of deliver the jokes and make the reveals faster the problem is is unless you want to be like family guy and just assume that those things didn't really happen so you could do anything they assume that everything happened so before they know it they're extending the season because they're popular or they're extending the run of the series because they're popular and all they have left to do because they made their series you know titularly based around this one question is sort of start answering these little things they tossed up in the air beforehand. And I don't think that was ever their intention. And so it's interesting to me uh, to see how the series ended talking in sort of future speak because they supposedly shot the last shot with the kids like eight years ago. So they had an idea of what, you know, like lost. <laughs> it's CBS's that- boyhood. Yeah, yeah. Like Lost knew that they were going to end on Jack's eye closing, but they didn't really know how they were going to get there. They definitely know how this, you know, is going to end. And any sort of reaction the fandom has to the mythology not lining up is just sort of a reaction to a process that was dealt with poorly because it was extended too long. I yeah, think. it's. I, I think it's partly the, the extending the process too long. And partly, I just, I don't really understand people digging into the mythology to the point that they don't feel like they can enjoy a show if it tells them it will reveal something and then doesn't do it especially with a show like how i met your mother where that's so blatantly not the point it's trying to do so much more than try to solve this but don't you think that how i met your mother has this like air of cleverness like it it, 
pretends that it's the next step up from the two and a half men's of the world and um like look at look at all these tricks we can play with the form and we're innovating on such amazing levels i'll never forget watching the um we're planting a number in every scene episode do you guys mm-hmm. remember right. that the one where mm-hmm. for some reason I, i'm not even forget? sure why like i don't think it has a story purpose i think they just did it to see if they could do yeah it. no it, it counted down and then there was a big event that happened at the end of the show and it was supposed to be kind of like building up the suspense of like what are we but it didn't i don't to? recall i mean I I know I don't remember I don't remember what happened at the end of the episode. Maybe I was just so big, blindsided like, kind of... by the stupidity of planting a number <laughs> in every scene. Yeah, the countdown physically. Um, but it's that kind yeah. of stuff that I'm just like, they're they're trying to be something greater. So you make promises through the storytelling or through your own wink at the camera. I mean, as somebody who watched the show for the story, I'm not going to fault them if it ends poorly. But as somebody who watches television as an interested critical party, I mean. How I Met Your Mother is arguably the smartest sitcom that's still being on network broadcasts. Like, I have watched a few Big Bang Theories, and I'm not going to argue that that's a better-made show because they're not really attempting the things that How I Met Your Mother is attempting. And I'd rather them, you know, faceplant into yellow face once every season and piss everybody off than not attempt what they're trying because, you know, Arrested Development even couldn't keep it up on a network because it was just too weird. So I think we might be seeing... I hope it's not the upper level of complexity, but it wouldn't surprise me if it is either. You know, we need our cheers that can do a weird episode every once in a while. Well, it depends on what you mean by complexity, because I'd argue that something like Parks and Recreation, which is, I think, is a smarter show in general, has done the kind of complexity the way The Simpsons has, where it's created a very wide range of characters in a town that actually feels like a real place. I That's mean, really I agree. Different from I, what you're talking about, but I it should is have, complex. I should have uh, said three-camera sitcom. I mean, they're the only ones I that see, are doing the sitcom formula that haven't found other narrative ways to, you know, sharpen that and make that better, which I would, I mean, you know... Parks and Rec is post office and office is post docudrama and you know kind of started it and evolved over the nine seasons or whatever they had to what Parks and Rec is. So I think it's it's weird because I think comedy evolves on a different path than uh drama. So while we're off getting our, you know, madmans and the wires that are talking about whole towns, it's taken comedy, you know, an additional decade to get to that point. Because you really have to understand your form to the point to sharpen it to make it funny. Wait, does this mean, I think the, the real important thing that we haven't touched upon is, does this mean that Joshua Radner is going to be free to wreak uh, more, more havoc? Are you so excited? Happy yeah. thank you more, oh please, God. Josh Radner. Yeah. More. I was hoping that this show would simply go on forever, if only to keep him busy. But now Kobe Smulders gets to go be hot and lots of other things. Marvel movies, other Marvel oh, movies. Yeah. Really do Mostly other Marvel. She'll be rich forever, so that's good. Uh, thank you, How About Your Mother. I'm glad that you existed, even if I wish that maybe uh, you had stopped. You'd exist. Stop existing a little sooner. When I wake up. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out, yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man. Captain America the Winter Soldier will have nerds lining up and also staying through all the credits, not so they can see who the second gaffer was, but so they can see <laughs> the post credit scene, which is no longer Nick Fury showing up to recruit someone for the Avengers, so at least that's okay. They should with. they should have tipped their hat for in Iron Man three and done that again or something. Yeah. I don't know. Just have Nick Fury show up to re-recruit Tony Stark for the or Avengers. Or kick him out. And be like, I'm, uh, you're out of the Avengers initi- initiative. Did he sorry. do that? 
Didn't he do that in the second one? Oh, I don't know. Yes. Confusing. Yeah. Get with it, Patches. Anyway, uh, I don't want to spoil what happens in these, but it does follow a similar pattern to what happened in Thor, where you've got kind of one that sets the table for what the next film will be, although actually the next film is Guardians of the Galaxy, and it doesn't really have that, phase. that one has the table next, set for Next after phase. Thor. Is the oh proper God. way to put oh that, I think. God. All right, so this is why I'm exhausted by it. Basically, these post credit scenes, they come in. I sit there, and I wonder who the hell Thanos is, and I have to ask everybody else who, you know, everyone else sitting around me, and if I'm not seeing it with a comic book nerd, I have no idea why a purple guy showed up at the end. And sometimes they're funny, and sometimes they're pure table setting, which is how I feel about the one at Captain, the Captain America. And then when you have actually at the very end of the credits, you've got, oh, without spoiling anything, an actual valuable character beat from inside the story. And I realize that they're doing something because we expect it and they're trying to play with it, but I kind of feel like they've worn out their welcome and they're not doing anything innovative with the form anymore and it's time for them to blow it up and do something Well, new. I agree with your point overall. I have to challenge your contention that the second uh, after the credits scene in Captain America 2 is in any way, shape, or form a valuable beat to anyone, anywhere, at any time. It is pure... It's a waste of your life. There are 35 seconds... They're just gone forever. <laughs> Patches. Patches, you have also seen Captain America too. I have. Well, just on a, a larger look at this this problem or this continuing trend with Marvel. It's funny. I was just watching a video. I won't call this video out by name, but uh, someone was interviewing Kevin Feige um, and taking like listener calls, and and someone on Twitter or something was like, "Hey, do you think there's going to be an after credit scene in Guardians of the Galaxy?" And Kevin Feige's like, well, you know, we don't commit to doing one. We never know. So maybe not. But it's possible. And I'm just like, why Why would you say that? Yes, of course there's going to be an after credit scene. It's now tradition. But when I, I'm curious when tradition starts grading. And I think now is the – I mean, I like the idea of teasing stuff that's totally inexplicable um, because it gets people talking afterward and keeps conversation about a movie. You know, it kind of ends up looping back online to talking about the film in one way or another. So I think it's somewhat positive to tease people with that. Um, what annoys me is what you're saying, Katie. Um, Captain America concludes with a beat. You know, if you're into the movie, unlike David, you might appreciate it. But you'd appreciate it even more if it was part of the actual film. And Thor 2 infuriated me in this way, that, you know, the, the emotional arc of the movie is tied up in a, in a scene that's way at the end of the credits, not even the mid-credits teaser, because so, we have two now. Um... Yeah, and I can't imagine everyone stayed for the last beat once they saw Benicio Del Toro doing his Guardians of the Galaxy craziness. Uh, and that really frustrated me. And I don't really understand the decision to do that, if only, I guess, to lure people to the end of the credits, which might be positive. But uh, you need to make a cohesive movie. The directors made that scene to be in the movie, put it in the movie. It's, it's Marvel showing they don't care about the people who make their films. For me, I guess this is just a continuation of the grand tradition of James Bond will return in, and I don't see it so much as isolating specific parts of the story that you're going to have to know as sending the message to fandom that, you know, unlike, you know, Harry Potter or Game of Thrones that has a set amount of source material and how dare we, you know, even think about continuing beyond it, these are large companies with a lot of investment in showing you new things. And to them, it feels beneficial to give you a glimpse often of the next director and the next large story they're going to tell to sort of reorient what you thought their entire world was about. And until 
I don't necessarily think that the end scene in Thor, which feels isolated, and the end scene of Captain America 2, which feels isolated, belong to those movies as much as they belong to what Marvel's very specifically saying they're going to do with the third entry in both of those franchises. Um, <clears throat> without getting into spoilers, that's what I have to say about well, that. I, the one thing that jumped out from what you were saying is about directors. Uh, I think that you are delusional if you think that any of these post credit scenes have any sort of directorial imprint on them whatsoever. Uh, and I think it, it just sort of goes to show how little creative freedom or, or interest there is in any of these movies and how uh, they none of them are really designed to stand on their own. It's all just trying to push you along to the next thing to get another 15 or 20 of your dollars uh, and keep it going because God forbid you leave the theater thinking that you've seen a complete thing. Uh, it, for me, I would much prefer if they just left it to what they do already in the spirit of James Bond movies, which is they say, Captain America will return in the Avengers Age of Ultron. They say that at the end of the movie in text. And for me, that is, I mean, I, that was really a special thrill in seeing that as a kid when I was watching old James Bond movies. And I knew that I could immediately put on the James Bond movie they were referring to, but... Uh, I like that. I don't know. That <laughs> David was wants for me. all the Marvel movies to be out already so that he can go binge watch <laughs> them at his I leisure. Mean, if that's what you're saying, I if, agree. If there was, if what Dave was saying about any sort of like directorial imprint on these things were true, I would perhaps find some value in them. Uh, if the directors of the next project were able to really run nuts with this, uh, it could be fun little, little shorts that we saw, but they're purely sales grabs and I find them sort of loathsome in that regard and the one the second one after captain america is really like just please do me a favor and just leave the do yourself a favor leave the theater after the first one when i wake up well i know i'm gonna be i'm gonna be the man who wakes up next to you when i go out yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who goes along with you. If I get drunk, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who gets drunk next to you. And if I haver, yeah, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who's havering to you. So for today's segment three, we're gonna be talking to uh, mostly the cinephile's responsibility to reckoning with what's in the zeitgeist. I was having a little Twitter back and forth the other night with Peter Labuza over at the Cinephiliacs podcast, which is a, a great podcast that you should listen to if you don't listen to it already. And uh, he was essentially, I was saying, because I was watching the Avengers on TV, that I believe that the Avengers completely and in every which way outclasses all the other Marvel movies. That's something that I believe to be very true. And that I'm pretty much just done with these movies, uh, save for whatever Whedon does next, because the Avengers 2 I'm interested in. And then, you know, when one of them happens to be an Edgar Wright movie, I'll see that. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, and Peter was just saying, like, you know, he, he just came back at me, and he's a very uh, high-minded cinephile. He does not have much time for uh, pablum, as they say. He was essentially saying that he didn't have, he didn't bother with the Avengers. And, uh, and I sort of misunderstood him. I thought that he hadn't seen the movie. But I sort of responded that I think that any cinephile as uh, committed to the medium as he is uh, has to has to reckon with any movie that opens to more than 200 million dollars it's so i mean which is not an arbitrary i mean it, it's i don't mean like you know in the future every movie that makes over 200 million dollars opening weekend you have to see i'm just saying it's representative of how uh 
tapped into the zeitgeist the Avengers was. And I would think as someone who, uh, I mean, it's almost an investment. It's like you'd want to see this, you could know 30 years from now, sort of what defined populist filmmaking in uh, 2012 when the Avengers came out. Um, and so, and he, you know, Peter, in, uh, to his defense, explained that he did see the Avengers, didn't really care for it. I talked about how Joss Whedon used digital effects to bridge spatial relations in that movie and how much it impressed me, and he didn't really seem to care. But um, <laughs> the, the point is that I'm, what I want to open to you guys is, do you think that cinephiles who, like, really hardcore cinephiles, who most of the time are spending with older esoteric films um, and are not really just going to see the divergence of the world because they're there and they feel like they have to or that they have to for work, um, owe it to themselves and to their love and the relationship with the medium of their choosing uh, to make sure that they are have a working knowledge of these mega huge, you know, zeitgeist defining movies. For me, it's like even more important than, say, catching up with a mega huge zeitgeist defining movie from the past. Like, you know, seeing Sound of Music or Gone with the Wind is important to understand how American movie history works. But to see the Avengers while you're alive to be part of that zeitgeist is crucial. It's part of human experience. You, you, you can't really understand even what Gone with the Wind meant to the people who saw it at the time unless you go see the Avengers, if that makes any sense. Like, it seems like such a vast misunderstanding of what movies can really be. Even if, and I agree that like seeing the divergence of the world is a waste of time for people who aren't getting paid to review it, or you know who want to see it. Whatever I'm talking about, cinephiles. Um, but yeah, it seems like such a hugely important thing to understanding movies to me that it amazes me that anyone would think they could be a cinephile and not do something like that. I'm gonna, I guess, take the devil's advocate position in saying that you should probably see the highest grossing movie of the year. But I see a certain amount of importance in limiting your worldview. I mean, I don't think that unless you're working as a consumer advocate, if you're really working as a critic, then that is uh, you're defining the own boundaries of your study. And if you're not going to be talking to the zeitgeist or if you're not going to be telling, you know, John Q what he should spend his $15 on that weekend, if you're doing a, you know, exploration of black and white eight millimeter film, then if that's all you need to watch, do it. I'm, I don't think that, you know, you're, necessarily hurting anybody by not engaging with society but don't you want to better understand i mean i i want to know more about the relationship that people have with films so i'm curious about why a transformers movie continues to make 400 million dollars after two previous totally incoherent transformers movies why do they work for people what is action filmmaking uh, by the definition of all the people shelling out money for these movies and how what what are they soaking in that they might not be if they're watching um, older films or or what are they soaking in? I mean, what is the craft well, think, on display? I mean, there's so much that goes into making a movie outright dismissing it because it's operating under the the kind of Hollywood shingle seems like a mistake. It's still speaking a language that we care about and we want to know. And I mean. David, I know that you really appreciate the Avengers and don't wait. Hold on, oh. before we go on, okay. I need to. I want to just clarify the terms here because I think that sequels are out of bounds. I think uh, you know there, there's really nothing to be gained from the perspective that we're talking about here from seeing Transformers three versus Transformers. Well, I would disagree. Two, I would disagree. Transformers three is a much better well, movie. <laughs> but what I'm saying is just that, like, if you have a sense of um, 
I think it's just like it's again, it's an investment. I think it's like if you understand what the movie was like, how it communicated, how it used film grammar. I think the same things apply in Transformers One and Two. The same things apply in all these Marvel movies. That to see the one all-encompassing one sounds very helpful. And I think that if you saw that and sort of digested it, uh, you but seeing that seems reductive of all these films. The like to just find one that matters. I mean, take Captain America. What was happening? What Joe Johnson was doing in Captain America, the first Avenger, is radically different than what happens in Captain America, the Winter Soldier. These are two different types of films being made here. Um, and they're complicated by the Avengers, a film that you're setting as the pinnacle here and to not really bother with anything at the bottom of the mountain. Um, but this is, I mean, they're smaller films that I don't understand why that makes them less significant or less pertinent to a cinephile's conversation i mean you would want to see which how these films are engaging with different people like i am a big fan of these captain america movies um and i'm not a big fan of the iron man films and i like avengers so what does that mean about my taste and how is it but complicating the conversation a much more macro i'm taking a much more macro look at this but how I can you that, is, uh... is the point i mean how can cinephilia be a macro conversation well i mean i can jump into that where it's like you if you're focusing on one specific thing when you're talking about these zeitgeist movies they're defined by their negative space so because everybody saw avengers and everyone's going to be talking about avengers and the tropes that are in avengers are going to be the tropes that are referenced by an entire you know generation of people that think they're cinephiles it's not really as important if you know where all those things are coming from so, you know, if you know that it's like a five reluctant heroes band together to join a team, is it really important that you know who the Hulk is or that he punches Thor? You could argue that depending on your focus, unless your focus is how do people respond to comic book movies, that you already know all you need to know is a cinephile about Avengers just by knowing the history of cinema and what scratches the zeitgeist. I, I mean, but that's you arguing it from like... a storytelling perspective, not a filmmaking perspective. What, what I understand what Patches is saying, that the filmmaking is qualitatively different in uh, the Captain America movies than it is in the Iron Man movies, I understand that. I just don't think it's really um, 30 years from now, if you're looking back and just trying to get a feel of, of what the film landscape was like, uh, I, I feel like you could get away with just having seen well, the, the problem, Avengers. Well, the problem really with that, be able... I think the problem with that thinking is that the movies that quote-unquote cinephiles might be gravitating towards that came out 50 years ago, almost 100 years ago now, um, they felt like pillars on their own. And as we have talked about in our mini-segment, um, the Marvel film, something like The Avengers, as Dave suggests, is kind of built upon... Uh, these other movies, these sequels, and whether you don't like them or you do like them, they, they're still a foundation for this film, so it's hard to regard the Avengers alone. And I think that... Yeah, but I don't want to get too in particular to the Avengers or, or anything No, else. no, no, I, I understand, but <laughs> I, I was going to make another point here that I think genre becomes such an important part of these movies, these bombastic blockbusters where you don't really... I mean, how much thought is going in here, or is it studio executives pulling the trigger on all these gigantic set pieces? What needs to be in the movie? And yet, I still want a cinephile to come in and like examine this film, because it's playing with genre. It's playing with history. It must be ripped apart and rebuilt by the the history of film. And years ago, I think we had a conversation where I—and I still stick to this opinion—that 
I don't care who sees a movie. They have a valid opinion on it, whether they have a hundred-year history uh, or knowledge of, of filmmaking or if they're fresh off the boat and watching their first movie. I still care about how they're interpreting it and perceiving it. But I do want that person, that historical point of view, someone who is well-educated and um, would consider watching something like Transformers Dark of the Moon, horrible film, um, and, and giving it the time of day that they would an Ernst Lubitsch film, perhaps. I mean, see, the weird thing is, for me, is I feel like all the artistic community is separated into three types of people. You're either like an artist, a critic, or a consumer, and you could jump in between those spheres, but I really don't think there's a lot of overlap. I think if you think you're overlapping, then you're, you know, sort of getting out of the realm of, of what you should be doing. So for me, it doesn't seem like there's any situation which would, what patches what you're describing is you would like to have this person's perspective, but for me, there's no situation where we require the person to take that perspective just because everybody else thinks it's popular. And I'm not talking about the people that this person would be talking to. I mean, this is a purely selfish thing. I'm talking about for the sure. person's own edification. Yeah. It's the reverse what, of to what, like, to how, what, like, how comprehensive an understanding of the medium they're going to have. How much are they losing if they disregard? Um, movies like this do blockbusters I mean maybe this is sort of a different question but do blockbusters of this day and age particularly when they also closely resemble one another give us less valuable information um, or less information period than uh, the zeitgeisty films of 50 years ago is it is the onus on us less now to see all these movies because really seeing one you see you see uh, the Hunger Games I really feel like, you know, there's a lot of things that are being swept under the temple that you won't need to touch your, like, 30% of the $100 million-plus movies are sort of taken care of. They fall under that umbrella. And I think, you know, you see the Avengers. You don't really need to see any of the Thor movies or anything like that. I mean, I think Do you in, find in that they don't comment least, on anything, so they're almost worthless? Is that, what you're, is that what you're getting at? I mean— I'm talking I'm talking from a purely removed perspective, just from understanding film history as a whole, from the year— like, well, you know, that's what I'm, I'm saying. 20, what are you defining 45. as a zeitgeist film then? I mean, I, I the way I would um, uh, I understand that saying, is, is that it's reflecting something of the moment. Case, in this particular case, I mean, yes, we'll, we'll talk about it in our review episode. Captain America 2 happens to be hyper-relevant, right. but it's almost – it's so relevant – uh, and on the nose that I don't really feel uh, you could you know read a news article from this period of time and you'll get a lot more out of it. But I think that uh, yeah, the other Marvel movies are sort of an echo of the Avengers or um, certainly the ones since then and the ones building up to it. I mean, they all sort of just you know the, all these little tendrils that get together into this one thing. Um, I, I, from my hypothetical perspective that I've sort of devised for this conversation, no, I don't think that there's really any value in seeing those other movies because you want to see what Joe Johnston, who's a hackosaurus, you know, did with the, his time. You, you, you just burnt this Hidalgo fan's heart. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you're making the opposite argument of the eat your vegetables argument, which is people that subside mostly on vegetables, should they be forced to, you know, wolf down at Big Mac with the rest right. of us every once right. in a while. <laughs> Which yeah. is interesting because if you define it like that, I can't think of a blockbuster since Avatar that has been important enough in enough different spheres to be something that I would say people had to see to understand like the history of cinema. I don't even think I Avengers. think Gravity. I, you know, and we all know that I'm not the biggest Gravity fan out there. Uh, and my opinions of these movies, as far as their, you know, my enjoyment of them are irrelevant. I, but I think their Gravity, um, if only 50 years from now to see what we thought in 2013 was sort of the pinnacle of 
Um, mm -hmm. What we were doing with the special effects that we had at the time. I mean, that's always something that's really interested with uh, interested me. Like, what are, you know, from from a trip to the moon. It's like, what are they doing with the, the tools that they had then? And that I think is a really interesting reflection of it in a way that something like Frozen, which looks like a million other so this uh, computer-generated films, do this not. This is what intrigues me about this conversation: defining zeitgeist today. Like, what ends up pushing the envelope for you? I mean, with or with Gravity, it's a craft thing. But is are there story? Uh, zeitgeist films or topic zeitgeist films or uh, is that what you're getting at? I mean that, yeah. that blockbusters I mean, really have nothing was, uh, to bring to the table. Rashomon was a uh, was a story. It's like I mean that's like more of a formative thing. It's not necessarily right. in the zeitgeist. I mean it was popular in film culture, but it wasn't like a you know for the masses. Um, I mean like you know something like the Usual Suspects maybe was mm. uh, yeah or the Sixth was, Sense which was yeah. no, the Sixth Sense Blair Witch Project yeah. Yeah, or the, the Blair Witch Project was actually, you know, as much craft as anything else, craft and narrative, uh, and you know, combining marketing. it to form and marketing, right, which has become a narrative unto itself these days. Yeah, uh, it's a really important one, I think. Yeah, but, you know, so I think that Gravity qualifies, Frozen does not. I think that's, you know, with two massive, massive hits like that, I think it's an interesting But you're writing off draw. Frozen because you hate Frozen, but is Frozen a zeitgeist no, film because Frozen. it's two women leads in an animated film? I mean, quality withstanding you know as you mentioned well, it's a hard I thing mean, to, it's a hard thing to know right now if if frozen again if frozen has any sort of long-lasting impact it will be on that front absolutely uh but at the same time you know frozen has very been there done that feeling it's another disney princess story uh, however you want to slice it it is uh it looks very very similar to a number of uh recent movies and while you know <laughs> so we're reaching for zeitgeist films at this point Right. I mean, you can't, you can't, you certainly can't argue that Frozen isn't in the zeitgeist. By, I mean, it, it is. It's like the heart of the zeitgeist. But um, as far as its potential relevance to cinephiles of the future, yeah, I, I would not be so sure that it will have much. See, I mean, it's so interesting to me that you have to sort of know what you're looking for, at least vaguely, and then you can sort of pick off films that are close to the zeitgeist. Like, I don't know if, you know, picking on Frozen the Avengers because they both made over a billion dollars is necessarily correct. Like, if you are really into the idea of performance on film and how that changes through the ages, you probably watch everything Andy Serkis is in because you'd be an idiot not to. And, like, those, you know, Apes movies we're going to look back on in history as being something interesting, even if they don't end up plot-wise being interesting and even if they don't end up making that much money. Uh, yeah. What about... I mean, I, again, I, I hesitate to even say this because i want to keep the conversation macro but didn't his work in uh lord of the rings sort of well patches you know, was saying that threshold patches was saying you know what things do you watch that are you know sort of outside of plot or whatnot i think it's possibility to watch the evolution of a technology through somebody that seems to be you know harnessing it really well and that mm. has nothing to do with being interested in the rejuvenation of the planet of the apes franchise right yeah, and I think that goes along with what I was saying about being interested in what people were doing with the tools available to them at the time. Um, well, there's something interesting also, like, and I was thinking about Avengers and comparing what needing to watch Avengers to Guardians of the Galaxy 4, whatever has a huge distance from it, and looking at something like Skyfall, which is a weird anomaly within a James, Ban James Bond franchise, but also this yardstick from which to look at how this thing that's 50 years old can reflect the trends of its time. and kind of you can understand what blockbusters mean by watching this one standalone movie that isn't part of an avengers like franchise but it's part of something older and more specific it's well a skyfall's skyfall's a really interesting example because i think that it provides the value that we're talking about in the present moment uh i think yeah. that its value is is into our conversation you know 40 years from now 
is severely mitigated, but I think that it does all this heavy lifting for you at the time of its release. Um, I mean, it's sort of designed to do that. That's a great movie, by the way. I was just watching that the other day because we have this epics, free epics on Time Warner Cable for the next three months. (laughs) So I get to watch Skyfall. I mean, also, I don't think there's any shame in backtracking. For instance, I think a movie like The Siege with Denzel Washington only became more interesting as American history started lining up with it where mm-hmm. at the time i don't think i would have told anybody to go see this possibly racist movie about you know crazy arab paranoia because it just seems so far out of what was going to happen but or I, it's like uh talking me and patch is talking about political thrillers last right. week and looking well, at what can teach us about the past and then also about ourselves now right the but siege I, is tony scott right I believe so, but I mean... So, I mean, what's interesting about The Siege... Oh, no, it's Edward Zwick. Woof. Oh. Is that uh, the one that came out, like, a week before 9-11? Wait a second, we don't like Edward Zwick? No. Screw you. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Blood Diamond, Mr. Uh, the La- uh, Jingoist Last Samurai, which is a very pretty movie, but uh, kind of... The Siege offensive. came out in 1998. Uh, but, you know... The, what am I thinking I, of that came out before 9-11? Anyway. But the the... I don't, the siege falls into that weird middle place where it wasn't in the zeitgeist at the time, and I think cinephiles uh, really, you know, and no good cinephile, Mr. Patches, has any interest in seeing what Edwards Wick's doing with his time. <laughs> wow, <laughs> so, such a diss. So you know, it falls it falls right into that strange middle ground. Had it been directed by Tony Scott, which for a half second there I thought it was, uh, that would have been a really interesting counterexample because I think the cinephiles who had hard ons for Tony Scott, especially over the last ten years of his life or so, would have flocked to it. Uh, and then it would have been interesting to see that trajectory from it being a cinephile movie to it becoming, you know, give it its prescience, uh, more of the zeitgeist. But Yeah, well, I mean, what I'm saying is that you could account for evolution because I think when The Siege came out, I wouldn't have told anybody that they needed to see it. So mm-hmm. can't, can't we just allow for hindsight? Well, that's my question, David. I don't know if this seems relevant, but do you think that there is criteria to kind of sniffing out zeitgeist films as they approach you know we can look back and say avengers was but sh- i should see that on the big screen right that's a big screen movie i should yeah i should see i back. should prepare to get to these well, zeitgeist films. <laughs> <laughs> you know when you get to the sort of the the monkish uh, cinephiles to borrow from jeffrey wells terminology i mean they uh that that definitely falls under their criteria and the behavior for what they would do but i think i'm really more talking about just having a working knowledge of this sort of thing, uh, you know, as a matter of context for other conversations. I mean, I think that, like, you know, the the conversations that the Avengers will be relevant to over the next 40 years, it's impossible to say, but you'd have to imagine there will be a few. Um, so I, I don't just, know. If, to go back go to what I was saying at the beginning, there's just things that you know seeing something in its time that you're not going to know. You can look back and say, oh, yes, I kind of remember that Spider-Man was came in after 9-11 and it seemed like it was going to be important for New York, but seeing it at the time that that happened and actually feeling that means a lot. And you, to be alive for whatever zeitgeist you are, if you're interested in how films affect culture, I feel like you really need to witness that for yourself, if at all possible. Oh, man. I've, yeah, but what was yeah. your... What was your uh, you were comparing the Avengers to Gone with the Wind? I don't know. I mean, I saw the Avengers uh, in a crazy, crazy fan pack screening like two weeks before it came out, and... Uh, you know, it definitely felt like an event as much as, but you know, you can only sell so many tickets for, you only put so many bodies in a theater. There are only so many seats. It didn't feel uh, like any more of a event than, and you know, Captain America, World Police, or the shit it's called will feel. And, you know, I think, I, I don't really, 
I, I recognize what you're saying is, is valid. Well, I don't mean sure, in terms of the theater experience, but, but in terms of being on Twitter or watching the news or yeah. conversations that you have with people. Like there's, you know, there's ways that you experience movies when they actually do hit a nerve. But so much cinephilia is sort of about, um, it's less experiential than it is, you know, cerebral. It's, it's less about uh, the memories you can remember from these particular experiences than it is um, you're just having a working knowledge of what these movies did, who made them, you know, what they, how they influenced uh, both audiences and the uh, medium as a whole. Um, I think the experiential thing is, of course, important as a movie goer. And I think, you know, cinephiles wouldn't be cinephiles if they weren't actively tapped into that. But I'm not sure how crucial it is to this conversation. I guess as a way to sort of wrap up and put it all on David's shoulders, I will say, David, that as somebody who is in the zeitgeist, the moments that you said you like Transformers 3 and the moments that you said you like the Avengers have stood out in my head as like banners towards really interesting podcasts because <laughs> you don't often defend these large blockbusters. So for me, as somebody who follows your work and opinions, it was valuable to me to have those instant reassurances that Aww. I wasn't walking into crap. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, uh, my opinion was really going to sway you from seeing the Avengers. <laughs> Can you imagine Dave not seeing the Avengers or no. the Avengers 2? He's <laughs> just like, no, I heard bad things. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just want to end by saying that you're probably right on Ed Zwick. He's more, wow, he's more help. That's such a fast turnaround. Well, like thirty something is a really great show. That's a better contribution than Legends of the Fall or Love and Other. Drugs. And Legends of the Fall is like top oh, tier Zwick. <laughs> I'm saying thirty something is at the top there. Uh huh. <laughs> glad that we've had this time to reconsider the work of Edward Zwick. Good night, everybody. Reconsidering Ed Zwick. That does it for today's Fighting in the War Room. We'll be back on Friday to review Captain America, the Winter Soldier, World Police, Frank Capron, America to the future. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you we are. We will get to a point where that's the name of the movie, by the way. <laughs> uh, I am Matt Patches. I write on the internet all over the place. I'm on Twitter at Mr. M-I-S-T-E-R Patches, and I put all my work on my Tumblr, which is mattpatches.com. And we also have a website um, where there are, are talk back comment sections and shared buttons, and it's a one, it's wonderfully designed by Dave. Um, fightinginthewarroom.com and also you can see Dave's Lost Project which we all chipped in and did some sound bites for but it's his lengthy examination and that's fightinginthewarroom.com slash lost filler <coughs> sorry How I'm, dare you. David, I'm David Ehrlich uh, I am a freelance writer and for the most part these days you can find me on The Dissolve uh, you can find all of us or you can find me on, on Twitter as well at David Ehrlich and at Criterion Corner you can find all of us together on a lovely website that uh, was designed by Mark Zuckerberg called Facebook. Uh, the owner of Oculus Rift? Yes, <laughs> the one the one and only. Uh, at Fighting in the War Room on Facebook. Come chat with us, write on our wall, we'll write on yours. It'll be hot. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell that first part DA70. That's also my Twitter handle. Captain America 2 is coming out, which means it is Dave season at latino-review.com. 
Marvel movies context, figure out where all the storylines are leading. We're going to be talking a lot about Spider-Man. It's going to be great. We're also going to talk about how the Justice League movies aren't awesome. And if you have any opinions on that or anything we talked about uh, this episode, you should give us a call at 914-410-6450. Leave us a voicemail, and if we like it, we'll play it. I really want someone to call this week. I want to answer someone's questions. It's so fun. I agree. I like I like calls. I like calls, too. And I knew it was Dave season. My allergies were acting up. The ice cream man's back out. It's You're a, so allergic it's a, to Dave season. It's a great time to be alive. I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at Vanity Fair's Hollywood or on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y R-I-C-H. You can also find the entire group of us on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can also answer this week's lightning round question, which was... In honor of Captain America 2, who is an on screen hero that best typifies the true American hero. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back talking to you on Friday. Da, da, da.